Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. It is hard to miss in the news these days. It's become a regular occurrence to hear about yet another homicide in the city of Albuquerque. As of December 1st, Albuquerque police has logged 100 homicides and 104 homicide victims, breaking an annual record. Not a headline we're proud of here. And we know violent crime is a huge concern, not only for people that live in Albuquerque, but also for law enforcement who's tasked with protecting people, responding to calls in the community. So whether we like it or not, it is a topic we cannot ignore. And here with us to talk about the root of the problem and also how law enforcement is handling it is Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina. Chief, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here today. Yeah. So Chief, first, I wanted to give people a little bit of insight into your background. You actually retired from APD as a commander in 2014 after a 20 year service. I'll just read a little bit of your bio here so people can learn more. Um, You've been a patrol officer, worked in the property crimes division. Then in 2017, were appointed to deputy chief for APD overseeing the Field Services Bureau. Mayor Tim Keller named you interim chief in 2020 and officially named you chief in March of this year. So you've been in Albuquerque for a long time as a law enforcement officer. What are some of the biggest changes you've noticed personally in the city over the last few years? You know, some of the biggest changes I've noticed is, uh, you know, we really need to work to find a balance within the community. And it goes in a lot of different areas. Like there has to be a balance with uh, a lot of the social service programs and law enforcement. And we have to be able to say that we want to help individuals who have substance abuse problems. But as a community, we need to draw a line. There has to be a line in the sand that says this person has now gone beyond that. And the solution is incarceration and the programs that they will receive when they're incarcerated. And I I think that's the biggest thing I've seen changed, uh, and I've seen it change both ways. Uh, In the early 2010s and after that, we really saw the push towards diversion and people getting help. And it was recently, I think it's gotten to the point that uh, things have swung so far one way that now we're hearing the public cry out, we want people to be held accountable. So I think the, the big, that's one of the biggest changes I've seen. But I've also seen the changes on the other side with how officers are seen and viewed within the community. I was here during 2010, 11, prior to the Justice Department coming in, and I saw the frustration in the community, and I recognized changes had to be made at APD. You know, I retired in 2014, and leaving here and going to the Pueblo of Laguna and becoming the chief in a smaller community really helped me understand the impact on community that a police department has and the impact the chief has on a community when uh, they work with the community. So coming back, it really taught me uh, those important lessons. But I saw where we lacked community support till now. Uh, prior to the election, I was really happy to see a poll that came out that said 62% of the city supports the direction the Albuquerque Police Department is going. And, you know, of course, there's, I think, somewhere around 18% that don't. And there will always be that portion of the population that don't support us no matter what we do. So I I think I've uh, been able to experience and see that on both sides also. 
I wanted to focus on homicides. Of course, we, we mentioned that off of the top. It's really the crime that's the easiest for people to flag in the news, right? Even though there is much more to crime than just homicide. But, you know, the sheer number of homicides throughout Albuquerque this year, why did we break the record in 2021? What are maybe some of those contributing factors and why did we break that record this year? You know, I think there's one catalyst that kind of sparked things to a point where we got today, and it's a trend we're seeing nationwide. Uh, the pandemic. We've None of us have ever lived through one. We know that this is real. It's happening nationwide. Every major city has seen a spike in homicides. But I think there are a lot of small things that helped build up to this. Uh, there was uh, a lot of accountability and a lot of things that were occurring in law enforcement, which really questioned law enforcement. 2020, we had protests against the police. And we had defunding, defunding movements nationwide, and it affects our officers every day. That's one aspect. We have another aspect. Uh, we've talked about this. This isn't finger pointing because APD has its faults that I've had to work on, and it still has things we need to get better at, such as training detectives and putting together better cases. But the criminal justice system as a whole needs a revamp. We, we need to invest in a system that works. We need to communicate and work with one another. We need to take ownership where we struggle, but we also have to hold our partners accountable and say, you're struggling here. How can we help you get funding or whatever you need? So I think between those two things uh, and uh, a lot of uh, other factors such as poverty and things that were occurring in the pandemic that caused drug use, I think we've seen uh, just the perfect storm as to why crime is escalating at this point in time. Would you expect that homicide number to be maybe less than next year? It's too early to say, but am I seeing encouraging trends? Yes. We had a tough November, but we actually had a good uh, September and October. And we did see average numbers and we are seeing spacing. And that's the biggest thing I look for in trends is like, when do we start hitting that one week separation between homicides? We had a rough two weeks in November, but if you re remove those rough two weeks in November, all the way from September, we're kind of got to the point where it's one homicide a week. If you do the math on that, that would get us down to 52. So that's kind of the goal we're looking for as a department is when do we start seeing them become once a week and the numbers will add up to 52, which will be a good reduction. I know you mentioned the pandemic as a contributing factor. We know mental health issues raised during that time. People lost jobs, tensions were high, people were told to stay home. So there's all of those things that sort of create that perfect storm. Um, but I also wanted to touch a little bit on your background in property crimes, because I, I remember talking to you back in those days and the majority of those types of crimes we know are usually drug related. Are you seeing that same trend with violent crimes and homicide or violent offenders usually on substances? Or are they mentally ill? We encounter a lot of people who are under the influence of narcotics. Uh, for example, the vast majority of our officer involved shootings have shown that the person has, you know, narcotics in their system. So we know that's a big driving factor. Uh, we've had to address a new type of drug dealer. Uh, talk about changes. I remember when I came on as a department uh, in the department, we dealt with street corner drug dealers and we'd have, I, we'd literally see them murdered on a street corner. And then it kind of evolved into drug houses and warrants were done in houses where people were selling drugs, but they exposed their home to other people who were wanting to rob them and to 
uh, law enforcement seizing property and doing search warrants at their house. Then we kind of evolved into social media. And I think that really has led to an increase in our homicide numbers because it became very easy for inexperienced people to become drug dealers, not recognizing the dangers. And we had several homicides where, you know, there are young individuals uh, killed over $40. And, and it's sad. And we had to change as a department and really at first push our detectives to recognize social media is the new direction to go. And that's the type of investigations, and we've got them there. But at the same time, uh, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of people living in, and operating out of hotel rooms. And if you think, you know, we had a rash of homicides at hotels, and a lot of them were drug-related once again. So people have removed and stopped dealing drugs out of their homes because of the dangers associated with it. But we have to be in the forefront of finding ways to address what the current way is that they're finding to deal drugs uh, and, and right now, the two biggest are hotel rooms and uh, social media. So I wanted to shift just a little bit and talk about staffing. You mentioned making sure officers are on top of, you know, knowing the latest trends. Currently, APD has 926 sworn officers with an additional 52 in the process of being certified. You're budgeted for 1140. Mayor Keller made it a goal to add 100 officers each year. He's been in office and has so far met that goal. But we also know there are retirements, people who leave. Is recruiting an issue at this point? And do you see maybe less enthusiasm from the general public wanting to go into law enforcement these days? You know what? It is a difficult career. We're seeing a number of things on the personnel front. First of all, our recruiters are doing an amazing job. We are getting numbers. We have 47 that graduated the last class. Uh, we talk about, you know, we have 52 in the pipeline right now getting ready to start in the next couple months. And we have another 16 getting ready to graduate. So we do see progress going forward and, and we are getting numbers. But there, once again, there's a number of things that occurred that hurt our our numbers. And in 2018, our officers got a great compensation package. And it was probably one of the biggest raises we had seen in a decade. So every officer that had 20 years had to make a decision at that point. Do I retire because I'm eligible or do I stay? Because if they stay three more years, they get uh, their retirement will be based off of their new wages because that's how our system works in the state. And uh, sure enough, August of 2021, which was three years to the mark, we started to see mass retirements. So we are working well with uh, recruiting individuals it is difficult. I think there's a lot of individuals who question coming to their career or remaining in the profession, but we are also looking to see how we could streamline processes and bring support staff to assist officers. And the best example I could use is like the SHIELD program where we have civilians putting cases together for field officers so that they could go back into service and the district attorney's office gets a better put together case. Do you think there will ever be a time with APD where there are enough officers on the force to respond to all the crimes that people call in and they're requesting help for? Or is that an unrealistic expectation at this point? I think there will be a time, but I think it's not going to be based off of us hiring enough officers. I think it's going to be based off of us looking outside the box and finding solutions. I support the mayor and, and the CAO's initiative with the Public Safety Department. A new force of unarmed civilian first responders that the mayor says he wants on the street. This whole concept of just 
asking an officer to get some training and then do more for new problems, we really got to think about. And this is something different. We would hope that, again, the non-violent or non-criminal welfare checks could be done by unarmed civilians who are professionally trained. We're going to get a ton of calls off officers' plates. Uh, not only that, I support us finding uh, groups of uh, civilians that can assist us in areas where uh, we, we could use them rather than an officer uh, because we have struggled always. In 1995, when I came on, we we're in a hiring mode to bring more officers. I think I've seen that last for 26 years. So I think we have to stop focusing only on bringing in officers and we have to find different ways to do things. And one of the examples I'll use with that is our civilians that are investigating force are getting trained up. I'm getting good feedback about them. And we have teams now that go out and look for video instead of having an officer go knock on doors and try to get video of crimes that have occurred. So I think we have to streamline our process, get our officers doing what officers do enforce laws and all the other things that we've tagged them with, find the right people to do those things. How is morale? You talked about the protests and just the overall feeling towards officers over the pandemic. How does that affect morale for your department? Since March 13th of 2020, I've gone through uh, the biggest challenge of my 26 and a half year career. It has been challenging for officers. It's been challenging for leadership. I remember at one point during mid 2020, going to a briefing of our ERT as we were preparing for another protest. And I literally asked them, how many of you are in trouble at home? Cause we're at work again. And I raised my hand. And as soon as I did half the room raised their hand, I was like, we'll get through this together. And it is, it's difficult uh, we had the protests last year. We continually have DOJ and the monitoring. We've been criticized about discipline and a lot of officers have been disciplined. And And there's just, once again, there's so many factors that are being uh, combined that it's taken its toll on our officers. And uh, I think that uh, now is the time that, that we have to, as leadership, ensure that where we have to push back now that we have some credibility uh, with the processes, especially uh, whether it's the criminal justice system or the or the reform process, that leadership needs to put, push back to find that middle ground. You mentioned reform, and APD continues in the midst of that reform effort now, which I think has been about seven years since it really began. Now the feds say the city needs to overhaul the department. This report paints a picture of an out-of-control police department. We found that the Albuquerque Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of violating residents' Fourth Amendment rights by using excessive force during police encounters. Is the reform effort at all hindering the department in terms of the amount of officers that are out there on the street? Yes, in ways. But that's where it's imperative that I push back. And I think it's important. And, you know, I all accept the criticism uh, from th those that are monitoring our reform effort in the fact that I make tough decisions every day, whether I give additional resources to homicide for victims to find justice or I give additional officers to our force review team to investigate uses of force. It has to be a balancing act. And we've all seen the monitor's reports where they say there's not enough resources or we're resisting uh, reform. We're not resisting reform. And that's why I feel like having a monitor here to see the decisions I have to make each day would shed new lights to their processes because I'm not trying to resist reform, but I want to make sure that we're functioning as a department, 
that we are protecting the community. That should be our number one goal. There is nowhere in this country where an administrative or a civil function takes precedence over a criminal function. And I will continue to stand up for the people of Albuquerque and ensure that as chief, I get to devote resources where I hear the people of Albuquerque want it. And I just hope that our reform process gets more involved in the whole community, all of Albuquerque, and are able to uh, make the changes that we need. Jump back to where we started with this conversation on violent crime. Some people may look at the problem and say, you know, violent crime mostly happens to those who are involved in other types of crime. You know, it's not so often that random people in Albuquerque are getting roped into homicides. Um, but we, we have seen examples of that happening, to be clear. Does this homicide number matter? We've seen this record-breaking triple digit number at this point this year. Why does it matter to you? And are, are we giving this too much attention here in the media when we put in the headlines every time that there's a, a murder? As for the general public, I want the general public to feel safe. And you did hit some key points there that, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is, you know, some common factors with a lot of our victims and they have been involved in a lifestyle. But the thing that we all have to remember is each one of those victims are the sons or daughters of somebody. And many of them are parents to somebody else, and they have people who love them. And no matter how you cut it, each one of us has these individuals in our own families. I have family members that, you know, I worry about them. I see how they have struggles in life. So any one of us could be there with one of those victims. And I have some family members that really struggle and without a doubt, I love them and I care about them, but they have to overcome those struggles. So yes, it does matter. We have to find justice for the families that are left behind and that want answers for why their loved ones are gone. But above all, they also want accountability for those individuals who took their loved ones' lives. And that is why it's imperative and I commend the mayor for initiating the Metro Crime Initiative where we've brought together all the partners to fix the problems in the criminal justice system. Chief, thank you. Is there anything else that we've missed that you would like to touch on? No matter how challenging this last uh, year and a half was, you know, the one biggest thing I want to thank Albuquerque for was their support. The day our officers were shot in August, at one point in time, I had 180 text messages waiting on my phones of people lending support. And the public stepped up. And I think they really voiced that they support the Albuquerque Police Department and that they want crime reduced. I hope all members of the criminal justice system, whether it's political, such as legislators, or it's system-wide, such as the courts, the DA's office, I hope they all listen to the public and recognize that we have to work together, we have to fix this system, and the people of Albuquerque deserve to be safe and to know that criminals will be held accountable for their actions and that they don't need to fear them.
behind all of these homicide cases, it's not just the police who investigate. Prosecutors play a major role in drilling down into what happened, sometimes revealing a different set of circumstances than we may have even initially understood. All of that, of course, in an effort to hold suspects accountable. So are prosecutors facing the same challenges as police? Bernalillo County District Attorney Raul Torres joins us here to talk about it. Raul, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Similar to the APD chief, I want to give people a little bit more of your background. You're born and raised here in Albuquerque, been the district attorney here in Bernalillo County since 2017, and before that served as a federal prosecutor and senior advisor in President Obama's Department of Justice. You also served as assistant U.S. attorney and assistant DA prior to 2017. So what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed personally in the city over the last few years? My personal experience is, is not unlike, you know, everyone else in the community. And I've recognized, I think, just this growing sense that we've got a, a crime challenge and a, and a public safety challenge that is unprecedented to a certain extent. We, we, you know, in absolute terms, we still haven't hit quite the same rate um, of violent crime per capita as the mid-90s. But for those of us who are living... Um, you know, in this community right now, it, it's just an unacceptably high level, uh, particularly of gun violence and, and homicides. And that's where we have spent the majority of our time and efforts in terms of reforming the office, adding in new capabilities and new um, investigative capacities that we didn't have before, we didn't have prior to 2017, in part because we, we felt the need to augment the investigative capacity uh, of of our partners in law enforcement. And so we've been focused on that. But, you know, there is, I think, a, a real sense in the community that things aren't working in the system. And there are a number of issues which I've been sort of uh, trying to elevate publicly, both in within the community up and also in the legislature. And, and hopefully we'll be able to see some systemic changes um, and some new funding and new resources on on some of those critical issues. I know we do want to talk about some of those issues you just mentioned there briefly, but but I did want to start, of course, with 2021. One of the things you also mentioned being a record year for homicides in mm-hmm. Albuquerque. Simply put, what does that say to you? Is it surprising that we broke that record this year? No, I, you know, we, we, we were um, alerting uh, policymakers and law enforcement partners um, both at the local level and at the state level, that that based on what we were seeing and the data that we had inside the office, that um, it, given where the year started, that it was likely to to break the all time record for homicides. Um, and and part of the issue is that we had a very high baseline of violent crime, particularly gun violence, um, and 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 drug and gun related um, homicides in the community before the spike in the pandemic, which sort of has driven these rates up across the board. The problem is Albuquerque was already way too violent and way too dangerous before that spike that's, that's sort of impacted the entire nation has happened. And so it wasn't surprising to us. And, um, you know, we are, we're facing some serious challenges in the office. What does it mean for your office to have that record number this year? Is your team of prosecutors able to keep up with the number of homicides and violent crime cases, or or are they feeling overwhelmed? The district attorney's office in Albuquerque is the largest law office in the state, bar none, public or private. We receive nearly 25,000 criminal referrals 
um, or other referrals every single year. And somewhere between seven and 10,000 of those referrals are new felony cases. Homicide prosecutions are very labor intensive. They take a lot of work. They take a lot of follow-up investigation and they take a lot of experience to handle correctly. And so um, to a certain extent, we are sort of uh, the mirror image of what you're seeing in the healthcare system where COVID has caused a spike and a surge in admissions to the hospital. We're seeing the same thing. And not unlike the healthcare system, we end up triaging. So we have to focus on the most serious, the most dangerous, the most violent things first. And what that means is that I have more prosecutors carrying higher homicide caseloads than you normally would expect. And we also have prosecutors who, um, let's just say, have less experience than the, than the homicide prosecutors had when I first started in this, in this kind of work. You know, when, when I got my start, you know, 15, 16 years ago, you had to spend several years inside a DA's office um, working your way up from Metro court to lower level violent offenses to higher level offenses. And we have so much violent crime and homicide work to get through that we have no choice but to assign some of those cases to good prosecutors, but prosecutors who are still learning their way. And it's simply a function of more work than the system was designed to handle at the high end. It also unfortunately means that we have fewer resources for some of those lower level prosecutions. And um, when we would have time perhaps to maybe fill in the gaps on some of those fourth degree and third degree property offenses, for example, if those offenses are not fully investigated, if those cases are not fully investigated, we've been forced to, to turn away and decline some of those cases because they're just not they're just not ready. And part of that is driven by um, something that most people don't really understand. The police department, and, and this is not unique to Albuquerque, this is police departments across the country, um, their requirement is to, t- to take a case to probable cause, right? They have to have probable cause to arrest somebody for a criminal offense. My obligation is to present a case that I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt And so a lot of times what ends up happening is we get to probable cause. We have identified the right person. The police have made an arrest because they have identified um, enough evidence to support that charge. But, But that represents usually a fraction of the work that needs to get done. And unfortunately, when you have a police department that is understaffed and you have investigators that are somewhat overwhelmed, Um, A lot of times we get those cases to the stage of probable cause, but not all the way to beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if we're making this triage decision, just like an emergency room physician, we have to focus obviously on the most violent and dangerous and those cases that still need work. Oftentimes they get sent back to the police department to do that work. And um, it's a it's a real struggle to try and make enough room in the system for the most serious cases um, while also working with law enforcement to improve the quality of those investigations. Do you know offhand roughly how many cases each prosecutor is handling and and how is that affecting them? The problem is I can't give you an average in part because our child abuse prosecutors, for example, they take on a much smaller caseload 
because of the nature of those offenses than, for example, the general crimes prosecutors that work for me that handle those, you know, narcotics and property offenses. Those individuals carry a much, much higher caseload. We try to keep the caseload of our major crimes attorneys, that's where our homicides go, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 30 or 40 cases at a time. But we've exceeded that almost across the board. There's just too much variation in the type of work. But what we've done and what we did several years ago is to reorganize the office so that the most experienced people handled the most difficult things and we kept their caseloads light. But what that means is that on the bottom end, you have people that are handling lower level cases which with much higher caseloads and much higher case volume. And those cases tend to move a whole lot faster. With the triaging, that reorganization, do you feel it has worked in helping make a more efficient office and helping with better prosecutions? Or are you still missing pieces? This kind of work is never done. You're never at a place where, okay, everything's working as it should be. There's, there's always a real need for improvement, whether it's gathering discovery and getting enough witnesses to show up for witness interviews so we don't lose on a procedural issue. Um, we've seen a, a, a real decline in the number of dismissals, for example, for missed discovery or pretrial witness interview deadlines. Um, so what we've done is we've managed to keep a lot more cases alive under the case management order than, than we previously could. But, but um, the system in my office specifically has never been resourced for the unique procedural challenges that apply only in this county. They apply to no other county in the state. And so we are constantly re-engineering the system to try to deal with that. And there's, and there's lots of things that come up that are, that are unforeseen. You know, for example, the Albuquerque Police Department just moved to a new uh, record system. They moved from the old Tiburon system to a new system. And we relied on the Tiburon system to conduct uh, early victim contact to make sure that we got in touch with our victims right away because... If you don't do that, particularly in domestic violence cases, a lot of times those victims won't participate later on in the proceedings. Well, when they switched over to the new system, they cut off our access to the system. And I think it was just, it's one of those things where in a big bureaucracy, these decisions kind of get made. And so now we're in the position of of re-engineering a way to get access to those records so that we can make early victim contact, because what we were aiming for is to get in touch with all of our victims within 24 to 48 hours. And when we moved over to that new system at APD, things stopped. But that's, those are the kinds of logistical things that go on inside the system that most people just don't see. I know you've made it no secret over the recent years, some of the disagreements you've had with the courts. You had mentioned the case management order or something that was applied before you got into that position, but essentially a way of speeding up criminal procedure in cases as there was a major backlog of untried cases. Yep. That's one one element, the case management order. Another one was the changes that happened with the 2016 bail reform. I know that you have been one of those voices hoping to make a change in what are those rules related to pretrial detention mm-hmm. and appealing to the legislature to make that happen. How pivotal is revamping pretrial detention right now? I think it's absolutely essential. If, if we do not effectively and predictably detain the right people, the most dangerous people that we see in our system, you're not going to get a handle on the violent crime problem in this community. We have overwhelming evidence 
of individuals engaged, as we talked about, in, in gun violence and gun-related homicides. And yet the same individuals that come into the system armed with a weapon oftentimes get returned right back to the street. In fact, some of the data that we looked at demonstrates that we are losing more than 50% of those detention motions when there's a firearm involved um, across every crime category. And so it, it, it just defies common sense that if you're going to get a handle on crime and public safety, that you wouldn't start with the people that are already charged with violent felonies and figure out a way to more effectively keep them um, out of the community. And so my sense is, is that there's finally, after years of pushing this issue, consensus. Um, and, and look, and what I mean by consensus is among political stakeholders. There's been community consensus on this for a very very long time. I rarely run into somebody, uh, uh, unless they're in the criminal defense bar, uh, who says, oh, this is working. This is what we expect. This is, this is something that I can count on to keep my family safe. I think the latest poll from the Albuquerque Journal showed that 77%, at least of metro area voters, support strengthening pretrial detention. Um, the question is, are we going to find you know, the right advocates in the legislature during the upcoming session to get that over the finish line. I hope so. We've been working on, I was actually in Santa Fe yesterday, working with the sponsor, meeting with the governor's office, trying to hammer out language that would garner enough support to bring about this, this important fix. That kind of leads me to another topic where I had similar conversations about some of these violent offenses with the public defender's office when I was covering another story. And they expressed some disagreement to me with the idea that if you can just get a judge to agree that a suspect is dangerous by the court and keep them in jail pending trial, then you'll make the community safer. The public defender's office argues for more peer support, access to meds for mental health issues, pointing people to resources rather than keeping them in jail. And something the APD chief doesn't necessarily agree with, he says that he gets the sense that we've swung too far one way and that we need to hold people accountable. What do you see as the solution here? Do we need more social service programs or do we need more incarceration? Well, so this, and this is a perfect example of the oversimplification and the sort of unnecessary framing of, of certain issues. It, we can do both. We can provide additional resources for people with substance abuse issues. We can adopt and should apply and provide additional resources for people that, that are lower level offenders that have um, uh, either a limited criminal history or history with no signs of violence and, and effectively and safely manage them in the community. And, you know, I'm glad you raised the public defender's office. Um, I have the most generous pre-prosecution diversion offer program in the entire state. The public defender's office currently accepts 12%, 12% into their diversion of program. the diversion offers that I make to them. Their counterparts in the private bark are accepting north of 70% of the diversion offers. We should be helping people. But the real question is, when we talk about this new pretrial framework, it doesn't apply to lower-level offenders. It doesn't apply to people who come in on possession of controlled substance or lower-level property offenses. We're talking about people accused of murder, manslaughter, human trafficking, sexual assault, um, shooting a weapon, brandishing a weapon, causing great bodily harm or death. I mean, these are among the most serious crimes that you can imagine. And, you know, there's a great example. There's an example that happened this week. There was a young father who was captured on video 
abusing his infant son. We moved to detain that individual because he was accused of strangling his partner back in 2020. The judge let him out. He then didn't show up for his arraignment. We moved to revoke his conditions. A second judge let him out. And now we have a situation where, the, where we have documented video evidence of an infant child being physically abused by that same individual. Why? Right? Why are, why are we taking chances with someone like that? Why are we putting at risk children and other members of the community with someone like that? Um, and, and look, we moved in, in the first instance because we thought he was a danger. Obviously, the judge disagreed. What's the justification for keeping him out again when he doesn't show up? even after he's been given a chance. In other words, how, how far are we willing to go to try and help this person and in, and in making that offer of help, putting at risk everyone else in the community? Are these parties like judges, the public defender's office, the district attorney's office, is there ever a time when like everybody comes to the table and, and talks about this or, you know, potentially can get on the same page? I think to a certain extent, we've had conversations amongst the stakeholders in numerous venues, whether it's access to the grand jury or whether or not we should have the CMO or whether or not we should be doing pretrial detention the way that we're doing it. And the stakeholders are at an impasse. Look, I love this idea of we all get around the table. We keep talking and talking and talking. But at a certain point, you know, you can't make as much progress with people when they're diametrically opposed on some of these issues. And it's up to the people to decide. That's why we live in a democracy. That's why the people's elected representatives up in Santa Fe need to stand up and, and need to declare themselves one way or the other on where we think we need to go in terms of public safety. And then we let the voters decide. We let the people choose. Um, because I, I don't think that there are any undiscovered aspects of any of these issues that any of the stakeholders aren't fully aware of, right? We, we've covered this ground. We just don't agree. And so now it's time for the democratic process to work and we resolve the debate. I know the legislative session is coming up. Do you think this is the year it will happen? It's going to get a hearing. I'm excited because I've never been able to have it actually put before the legislature until now. So just having that public conversation is going to be valuable. And frankly, I think given the year that we just had, everyone and especially the governor understands that we have to do something. We have to act. Um, the citizens we represent expect that. And if we don't, I think there's going to be consequences for it. Any closing message that you would leave? One of the things that I always try to remind people is we can't do this alone. Police can't do it without community support. Prosecutors can't do it without community support. We have a program called the Victim Resource Center where we try to recruit volunteers from the community to come in and help us with domestic violence victims, victims of sexual assault, survivors of violent crime. And we need community support. We don't have enough paid victim advocates to cover all the victims in our system. And so because of COVID, things really slowed down and bringing on new volunteers, we're trying to restart that program and get it going again. So if people are really focused and they want to pitch in and they want to help, there's a way to do that at the district attorney's office, and we would love to have them. 
Thanks again to Chief Medina and DA Raul Torres for taking the time to chat with us about this important topic. We'll have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, feel free to contact us. You can reach me via email at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com and gburknm on Twitter. And along the lines of contacting us, we're always looking for good ideas of things to talk about, suggestions, comments, you name it. Give us an email. Gabby listed hers. Mine's chris.mckee at krqe.com. Also, I'm at chrismckee.tv on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.